Hey, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Hey, it's great to see you guys. My name is Billy. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, I'd love to do so after service. So if you're with us here in Livermore, uh, come and say hi, all 2,000 of you. It would be great to say hi to you. Uh, if you are brand new to church today, uh, what we've been doing since the first of the year is making our way through the Gospel of Mark, which is a wonderful book. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn to Mark 9. Mark 9 is where we're going to camp out today. And while you're getting there, I want to just talk about the guy, Mark, for a second. I love this guy. Mark, brilliant, brilliant person. He was, as we've said, the first person to write down a single coherent narrative of the life of Jesus. And so we study this book from like 2,000 years later, the lenses of academia and so forth. And uh, there's this genre in literature called gospel. Well, Mark invented it. So he was really, really ahead of his time. Just a brilliant guy. But more than just being a great author, Mark was a leader and a participant in, in the middle of the action in the first century church as the church exploded in the Roman Empire. And so he gives us this very unique perspective. And so the book is filled with action and, and intrigue and even a little bit of humor at times. And so uh, it's really just a, a fabulous study. But Mark's faith story didn't just start with him. It actually began with his mother. Mark's mom's name was Mary. Yeah, there's a lot of Marys in the New Testament, and I just gave you another one to keep track of. But we think Mary came to faith early in, in Christ's ministry, and undoubtedly, she had a great influence in her teenage son's Mark's life. We think Mark was a late teenager by the time Jesus died and was resurrected. And so uh, you really do get a sense of, of this transfer of faith between uh, she and him. So the cool thing here is that some of you today are at church or you're a Christ follower as a direct result of your mom. Okay, who's that right now? Just, just throw your hand up. Yeah, my mom, you know, really poured into me. My mom was integral in ministering to me as a teenager. So this then becomes a very good book for you to read. So here's what I want you to do. If that's you, if you raise your hand, go do something nice for your mom, guys, okay? Uh, this, Mother's Day is like three months from now, but who cares? Call her up, show her some appreciation because of the fact that you are living out a spiritual legacy as a direct result of your mom. So, so those are the marks in the room. Now, the Marys in the room, moms with teenage sons. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna talk to you for just a sec. This book is a good source of encouragement because it demonstrates the impact that you, mom, can have in that kid's life, that punk kid, that teenage son who is, I don't know, uh, do you notice that once they get around more teenage sons, the collective intelligence just goes down into the toilet, right? That kid who doesn't seem to get anything, mom, do not give up, keep praying for him, keep pouring into his life, keep parenting him towards Jesus because you never know when God is gonna drop into that young man's life and do something radical and transformative in his heart and so then we see this beautiful example and Jesus is, is working, so uh, I just want to encourage you, all of our Marys here today. Now, speaking of Mary, many commentators believe that it was her house that was the last, uh, the, the location, excuse me, of the Last Supper, and quite possibly also the location of the upper room at Pentecost. So that's pretty cool if you're Mark, like your, your, mom's, your mom's house is where Jesus is hanging out. 
And we don't know that for sure, though, because there's not quite enough data to substantiate that fully, but we do know this for sure. Uh, There's this uh, scene in Acts chapter 12 when Peter's in prison. This is about 14, 15 years after the resurrection. And he's about to die for his faith. The emperor, uh, Herod, actually the king, just is is out to get him. And so an angel shows up and jail breaks him out. Just miraculous jailbreak. And Peter's running through the streets of Jerusalem trying to put the jail in the rearview mirror. And where does he run to? Oh, come on, you know this. Mary's house. And Mary's having a prayer meeting when Peter gets there to pray for Peter's release. So she's just an incredible, incredible Christian leader. And so uh, it's just a, a legacy of faith here. Now, speaking of Peter, we know this, that Mark and Peter collaborated on this book uh, to produce this gospel. They were close ministry associates. In, associates. in fact, if you read this, Peter is present in just about every scene in the entire book. And our passage today is no exception. So I want to now dive into this. I'm sure you're here by now at the passage. We're going to read a famous section of text known as the Transfiguration. All right, verse two, let's get after it. It says this, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there, Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Mark adds parenthetically here a little bit of humor. Yeah, yeah, Peter did not know what to say. They were so frightened. There's some people who, when they don't know what to say, they don't talk, and then there's Peter, okay? Some of you are Peters. You know this. Verse 7. Then a cloud appears and covers them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Okay, I, do you get the feeling that this is just a big setup? Jesus is kind of setting the guys up, right? And they really have no idea what is happening here at all. Uh, just to summarize, okay? So Jesus like peels off three of them from the rest of the group, leads them up this really high mountain. And when they get to the top, he just explodes with light and beauty and resplendency. And actually Luke's version says there's like lightning coming from Jesus. And it's just like, there's just like this woe factor, like what is going on here? And then if that weren't enough, Moses and Elijah just show up and start having a conversation with Jesus. And then a cloud appears. And this isn't like a natural fog cloud, like, I don't know, Thule fog on the I-5. This is glory cloud. This is like Moses on top of Sinai glory cloud. And then in the middle of this cloud, God speaks audibly. And then at the snap of a finger, it all just disappears. And there's just Jesus all by himself. And as they're walking down the hill, he just casually says, oh, hey, by the way, guys, I don't want you to say anything about this until the time is right. (laughs) Their heads were spinning. It's a lot to take in. Actually, I don't know, maybe when you just read this right now, is your head spinning a little bit? This is a great passage. It's, it's It's really interesting. But I want to give us a key to understanding the big picture here 
And hopefully this is going to fall into place for us. And the key is found, actually, we're going to go right back to the passage toward the end. It's this sentence here. Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, this is not the first time the guys heard Jesus forecast his death and his resurrection. The first time was about a week prior, Mark tells us. We have to go backwards a little bit to Mark 8. And it's this famous conversation, this famous passage, and you may have read this, where Peter famously confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter's kind of the spokesperson for the, the disciples, and so they all get together and confer, and then Peter steps forth, and he says, Jesus, we, uh, we believe, the guys and I, that you are the Messiah, that you are the Christ. You are the one Jesus that we have been waiting for. And it's this beautiful confession. But Jesus, as soon as Peter utters these words, he immediately explains that he has to die. It's very unexpected. Here's the passage. Jesus, in Mark 8, 31, 32, he began to teach them right after this confession that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and be rejected by the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And then Mark adds, he just spoke very plainly about this. This is very clear teaching. And this throws Peter off big time. Peter actually begins to argue with Jesus. It says Peter rebukes Jesus. And he's like, hey, hey, Jesus, stop. No, 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 no. Stop talking like this. Don't you know, Jesus? This is not what messiahs do. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs aren't suffering. Messiahs don't get rejected. Jesus, messiahs are triumphant. Messiahs defeat evil. Messiahs defeat injustice. Messiahs ascend to the throne, Lord. So stop talking like this. And Jesus wonderfully just presses right through this pushback. And if you actually read now from eight to the end of the book, Christ speaks constantly of his death, his suffering, and his resurrection every time. It baffles the disciples. Why? Why was this so hard to understand? Well, we have the benefit of kind of knowing the full story, but the guys didn't. And I think there's something that bubbles to the surface here that is worth uh, looking at. I think the issue here is that Peter and the others had a very limited view of Jesus. That was his struggle. Peter limited his view and his understanding of Jesus to uh, a very constrained idea of Messiah. You know, Peter said, and the others said, okay, messiahs are this, okay, this tiny little circle, right? And then Jesus is teaching, and he's saying, no, 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 I'm this. And if we wanted to nerd out a little bit, we would put it in a Venn diagram. Now, this is not to scale, but this is Peter's view, and then this is actual Jesus. And this, guys, is why this dynamic, the reality of this, is why the transfiguration happened, because Christ was trying to reveal himself through teaching, but then he needed to show him, and so he takes him up on top of this mountain, and he literally just unzips reality, the three and a half dimensions that we kind of see every day, and he peels back the curtain, and then boom, he shows them who he really is, a glimpse of a limitable, illimitable glory and divinity. He's like, okay, you don't get who I am, transfigured, boom, here's who I am. So let me, let me just kind of pause for a second. And I want to dig into this because 
Here's the thing. This wasn't just Peter's struggle. We are plagued by the same issue, meaning people put limitations and restrictions and boundaries around Jesus all the time. I do it. I totally do it. Do you do it? Yeah, four people said yes. Thank you for participating. (laughs) I especially want to meet you after the service. (laughs) It's our common struggle. Our common struggle is a limited view of Jesus. Now, this happens in a lot of ways, but one way is when circumstances in our lives become bigger than Jesus, at least the perception of them. Like, what do I mean? Preachers all the time say circumstances, right? Well, what do we mean by that? Well, in this case, circumstances are sets of facts, of true facts about your life, and they continually punch you in the gut. That's what we mean by circumstance, all right? They just beat you up. They're true, real, real facts. Like, uh, for example, that massive fight that you had with a relative, a loved one, a spouse, and that fight revealed a deep unhealth, a schism in your relationship you didn't know was there. And it's like, wow, this changes everything. Or uh, unexpected job loss, second round of chemo, loss of a parent, big, huge circumstances. And the urgency of these things, these hard things, makes them bigger and bigger in our lives until it completely overshadows and obscures Jesus. It's actually hard to see the big, huge Christ that is in our lives because this thing completely is blocking our, our point of view. Now, there's, um, there's a lot of things in my life that I could use to illustrate this, but a, a particularly difficult season for us was uh, Christy, my wife and I, for seven years, we cared for her grandfather from the age of 81 until he passed away at age 88. And uh, that was overwhelming. Any of you who have gone down the path of, of elder care know what I'm talking about. And uh, Grandpa, though, uh, Ray was his name. I just called him General. Uh, amazing guy. World War II vet. Uh, you know, the, that, that greatest generation type mentality. I learned so much from him. He was 50 years older than me. So when he was 85, I was 35. And how many of you know that as a 35-year-old, you got a lot to learn from an 85-year-old? You just do. All right? And, and if you're like me, you kind of think you know it all until you get around somebody like this. He went to Caltech. He worked for ExxonMobil. He was an engineer. Guy just had an amazing perspective. He was so easily pleased. Every time we went out to a restaurant for breakfast, he would always order three eggs over medium with a little bit of hash browns. And then when they came, he would just dump pepper all over them. And you think we just were at Roots Chris. I mean, he was so happy. I just learned a lot about what it was like to just be easily, simply pleased with the little things in life from Grandpa. But it was tough as his health began to fail. And as Christy and I attempted, like a lot of caregivers do, to be responsibly caring for him, but at the same time protecting his dignity and his independence. And like the day that his license was taken away, his driver's license, that was not a good day. Grandpa was so mad at me. That was not fun. Uh, one, da- one time, specifically, overwhelming story. We were at uh, lunch at a Mexican restaurant. We, the kids were little, Aiden and Cars, And uh, we got our food, and we just began to eat. And uh, Grandpa was sitting right across from me, and he had epilepsy. And so he takes a bite of his burrito and he has a grand mal seizure at the same time as he takes a bite. And so he's having a seizure and he's choking on his food at the same time. 
And I'm just like watching this like in slow-mo and I, I see him turn blue and I'm just like, what do I do? What do I do? And I'm just like, you know, and then the training kicks in, right? The CPR classes that we all like hate to take, but we did, right? So that just kicks in. So I run around, I, I kind of pick him up, push the chair out of the way, and I grab onto his, his 83-year-old body and I began to Heimlich him. And I'm doing the thing, you know, right, right underneath the ribs like you're supposed to, and I'm trying to get my, and then I do this about three times, and then I just hear all these ribs just crack. Oh, I'm doing it wrong. And I'm like, I'm sweating. And I look over at Christy, and she's crying. Aiden's crying. Look over at Cars. She's just eating her taco. She's just like really focused. And I'm kind of thinking at the same time, wow, I, I halfway respect that a little bit. And so I keep doing this, and then the food finally comes up. And grandpa is still seizing, and so I lay him down. He's pretty much passed out. And uh, the whole restaurant's looking at us. Some, like, nice lady comes up to me and says, young man, you're doing such a good job. And I'm just like, leave me alone, lady. I'm focused. And then the paramedics come, and we put him on a stretcher, and we send him to the county hospital. I jump in the car. I follow the ambulance. I park. I get in there, and then we spend, like, the rest of my life in ER, like eight hours. And he comes out, and he's back to himself. And grandpa, like, had this thing. General had this thing against neurologists because he had a lot of them. He interacted with neurologists a lot because of his, his surgeries in his brain and all this. He had like a plate in his head. He, he tried to part his hair over it to hide it. It was adorable. Um, and this neurologist comes in and Grandpa's immediately just like, you jerk, just let me out of here. I'm just like, Grandpa, shut up, man. Like We're trying to get out of here. And so there's this thing and, and the, the neurologist leaves. And so I was trying to put him in a good mood. So I do what any of us would do. I started to make fun of the neurologist, right? And I start making grandpa laugh and he's laughing and we're, you know, we're having a good time. And then he just starts grabbing his ribs and he goes, he goes, Hey Billy, it hurts where you saved me. You know, and I'm just like, okay, that's good stuff. (laughs) That was just one day. That was one day in the life of caring for the general in seven years. And again, Man, we were overwhelmed. And I got to admit, even as a pastor, there were times I wasn't praying. I wasn't like asking Jesus for help because I was just buried in just not knowing what to do. And I don't know, have you ever been in that situation where life circumstances just overwhelm you? These sets of facts and conditions about your life, right? And so this, this, that's a, a, a way that we limit Jesus. That this, Jesus can't really help me here. Okay, I just, I'm not even going there. I just can't focus on that, right? And so this is essentially a version of what Peter was dealing with. Jesus is this, like, and instead of this. So let me ask you, do you today, do you today, are you struggling with a limited view of Jesus? Here's what I want you to do. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna actually, we're gonna do a, I call this a faith Visualization. I promise you it's not weird. Okay, so what I wanted you to do is I want you to think right now in your mind and picture a big Jesus, a strong Jesus, a capable Jesus. I mean, go big, okay? Go big or go to Canada, all right, on this, all right? You got that picture of Jesus? Okay, now double it. Double it. And then after you get the supersized Jesus in your brain, and then times that one by 10. And when we do this, do you see what we're doing here, right? We are just now beginning to explore the edges of 
Christ's immeasurable power. I want you to be thinking about this this week. Where, what parts of your life, where in your life are you working from a limited Jesus? And then how is that affecting you? Let's get this out on the table. Let's just talk about it. You know, let's just own up to it. He is immeasurable. He has immeasurable power. He has measureless love. His arms are fully capable to carry us through whatever circumstance we're, we're going through. There's gut punching us. Do you believe this? This is what the story teaches us. This is what the transfiguration is trying to get through to us today. All right, I want us to take that. I want us to kind of put that in here. I want to press a little bit further because there's so much happening here. And uh, I want to talk more about it. But here's the thing. I'm not going to get to everything. All right? I kind of say this every time I teach. So uh, it's just impossible. So we're going to just, we're just going to look at a couple of things. And uh, one of them I want to just go right at, which I'm sure you're also very puzzled by this, the fact that Moses and Elijah just show up, okay? Uh, did, you, did you think this was a little bit kind of like, wow, like I didn't, what, what's going on here? Why, right? Yeah, I know, me too. So mis- many have been puzzled about this. Well, first of all, why Moses and Elijah? Why not David? Why not, you know, Abel? Why not Abraham? Why not Deborah? Why not, I mean, just pick other characters in the Old Testament. Why not those guys? Well, many of the commentators tell us, and I think they're right when they say that it's Moses and Elijah because these two were preeminently the representatives of the law and the prophets. And these are two great motifs and divisions of the Old Testament that both point towards the coming Messiah. And so you have Moses, the great lawgiver, and then you also have Elijah, who is the first and in some ways the greatest of the prophets. And so that makes sense. Okay, if you're gonna, Jesus, yank anybody out of heaven to have a conversation with, then okay, Moses and Elijah, that makes sense. I get that. But Peter, notice this. Peter, James, and John, they were not introduced to Moses and Elijah. There was no introductions here. Did you see this? So Jesus did not say, oh, hey, uh, yeah, uh, guys, come over here. So I'd like to introduce you to Moses, uh, and he really needs no introduction, but this is who he is, and then Elijah, and Mo and Eli, here's the guys, okay? Just Jesus doesn't do that. Peter, James, and John, they instantly recognize Moses and Elijah. They knew who they were. They knew them. Oh, this is really important. Among other things, Jesus is giving us, guys, a preview of what heaven is like. And what this means is that we will both be fully known in heaven and fully know others as we really are. Think about not being known in just regular life. Like, it's frustrating, isn't it? Where you kind of maybe... You, you're, you know that, like you can sense that you're not being understood, you're being misunderstood by someone and, and that's frustrating or, or maybe you, you actually have a verbal guffaw in a conversation and someone walks away with just like the wrong impression of your character and your heart. All these kinds of things uh, where your true self really hasn't come forward. Well, that's not how it is in heaven because our true selves fully come forward in heaven. And what's interesting about this is 
is that it's our fully redeemed and fully purified and fully glorified selves. So no anxiety is attached to our personalities. So right now, some of us, we, a lot of us, we struggle with anxiety and that does provide a kind of a filter through which it obscures who you really are. Or pain is another filter. Or like the, the Billy who was abused in his childhood, that does affect somewhat my personhood and what I project in my relationships. Or, or just, just think like I'm just so exhausted all the time. I'm so tired all the time. Or, or these piled up disappointments that I've just been kind of walking around with rocks in my backpack or the scarring of being burned by past relationships. All of those things build themselves up. And we try to project who we are through them, but there is a prism in which that does kind of alter us. And none of this is there in the heaven that Jesus is showing us because his glory filters all of this out. You see, guys, the Christian vision of heaven is truly remarkable because we will meet one another fully as God intended us to be. You will be your whole self in heaven. I will be my whole self in heaven. And yes, in heaven, we retain a sense of personhood. We don't just get dumped into some nirvana-ish collectivism where we get absorbed. No, we retain consciousness. We retain personhood, but it's our fully perfected selves. Can you imagine the relationship dynamics in heaven? What that's gonna be like? Because we will all be interacting with our fully glorified selves in Jesus? It's kinda hard to imagine, isn't it? Like uh, there's no such thing as selfishness anymore or insecurity. There's weird social games that people play. That's not there in heaven. Lust is gone, jealousy is gone, bullying is gone, impatience, politics is gone, hallelujah. Oh. My job as your pastor, if I could just break it down, my job is to prepare you for that now. That's what church is for, is to help us take as many steps in that eventual direction that we're all gonna wind up anyway, so we might as well start now. You see, what this life is, is, is a college prep class. It's the grand dress rehearsal. And so what we do then is we hit the ground of heaven running by inspiring and encouraging each other here in Christian community to become our true selves. Yes, it's incremental, and yes, we'll never fully get there because that's for the other side, but why not try? Okay, all right, I can sign up for that. That gives me a vision to shoot for. You know, and some of us, we're so young, we're not really thinking a lot about heaven, but this is an important message because wherever you are in your life situation, it gives you a target to shoot for. It gives you a purpose and a vision. And so if there's something there that's not gonna make it into heaven, well, guess what? Just, okay, let's, let's, let's filter that out now. Oh, I just love this. This idea of practicing community where we're incrementally becoming our true selves in Jesus. And we get a preview of that here. And we need this preview because generally speaking, American Christians have a terrible view of heaven. Most of what we view heaven at, we get from cartoons and TV shows and movies. 
Listen, it's generally a good idea not to get your theology from media. Some Christians actually dread heaven because they think it will be boring, right? They think it's gonna be like, well, we're just like these floating ghost blobs that just kind of pass through each other and what we're gonna do there forever is sing hymns, Methodist hymns for eternity, (laughs) played on some big, huge organ. I don't even like organ music, right? Actually, C.S. Lewis didn't like uh, organ music either. He went to an Anglican church uh, and he would always choose the service that didn't play organ music. I'm like, reason number 2,000 why I love that dude, all right? So like, that's, that's like the view of heaven. It's like the Ned Flanders view of heaven. But biblically, it's so much more. The good news is that what I just described, these alternate views of heaven, they're not consistent with the biblical version, especially when we study texts like today. And so heaven becomes an adventure. Heaven becomes a place where we will feel and taste and touch, and we will do meaningful work in heaven. You know, uh, the, the apostle John, he describes at the end of it all, heaven comes crashing into earth. And they just kind of smash together. And it's this like incredible, mind-bending, mind-blowing vision of our future. And that gives us a lot of hope, doesn't it? We'll be our full selves, our whole selves. And we're gonna start doing that now. I'm almost out of time. I got one more point. Oh my goodness. I wanna press into one more component. Moses. Let's look at Moses. Specifically, uh, godly leader. He wrote the Torah, Okay. Nice. He led the Israelites out of Egypt. I mean, just this amazing leader, right? But towards the end of his life, when Moses was leading the people of Israel and they're wandering in the wilderness, sort of waiting for uh, the time where God gives them the green light to occupy the promised land, in this scene, he really goofs up. And he sins very demonstratively in front of the whole nation. And he disobeys a direct command of God. And then he kind of like takes credit for a miracle. And that's found in Numbers 20. He just, he just, oh man, he missed it bad. And so God, as a result, brings some consequences to Moses. Now, he still loves Moses, but the Lord says, essentially, Moses, because of your disobedience and because of your pride, I'm not going to allow you to enter the promised land. Which, by the way, it's the whole goal of his leadership was to get them in, into the promised land. And so God says, nope. You're gonna be able to see it, Moses, but you're not gonna be able to enter. It's a little bit tragic. And Moses accepts this, and then he dies uh, outside the promised land. He dies, and then it's interesting, God like actually takes Moses' body and buries Moses himself. There's like a private funeral with Mo and Yahweh. And we don't know where Moses is buried, because God did it, but it was outside the promised land. Okay, we got that, right? Fast forward to Mark 9. Mark 9, the transfiguration, right? They're on top of a mountain. Which mountain? Could be one of two places, right next to the Sea of Galilee or on top of Mount Hermon. Both of those places are in the promised land. Moses made it. He got in. I 
It doesn't say this because we don't know the full conversation, but I can just, you know, kind of imagine he's there and he's with Jesus and, and Elijah and he's like, oh, I've been waiting to see this for a long time and I'm here. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling your promise to me. I think the big idea here is, is simply this. Every single promise of God that goes unfulfilled in this life will be realized in eternity. Every single promise that we don't get to totally see materialize in full measure, guess what? It's realized in eternity. And this is actually really important because the confusing thing at times is we get to read scripture and we see these incredible promises of like, I don't know, peace or healing or justice, and then we like compare it to everyday life, like what just happened this week? Uh, Like read the 23rd Psalm, and you get this like, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and it's this beautiful promise, and then it goes on, and there's all this stuff in there that's so attractional, but then you compare it to like your day, and this like, it's just, there's a dissonance there. This grand vision of God's kingdom, and then you compare it to the dirt and the dust of this broken world. If we put it into physics term, en- terms, entropy, right? Thermodynamics, entropy is the, is the physical measure of the disintegration of physical systems. And what s- science tells us is that entropy, disintegration is increasing. It's on a steady path from order to disorder. So disorder, disintegration is, is on the rise. And that's just the way this material world works. It's broken. And that era has not yet ended, but one day it will. One day Jesus will reverse entropy and the brokenness will stop and be fixed. fixed, And that is the great hope of heaven where there's comprehensive healing and complete justice rolling like a river, right? Perfect peace. Just pick a promise. Pick one in the Bible and you'll see a measured sense of it now and then extrapolated into the future And Jesus will be in the middle of it all, just like he was with Moses and Elijah. And some of you today came to church with a hope deficit. Is there any hope for me? And the answer, guys, is a resounding yes. Jesus' heaven gives us tremendous hope. Why? Because he resolves everything. There's no hanging plot lines in heaven anymore. Everything is tied up. And one day, it'll be our turn on the top of that mountain, one day. My turn, your turn. And the things that just flummox us here, we're gonna see all somehow, I don't know how it's gonna happen, but it's all gonna start falling into place and all will be made right. That's a great hope to anticipate. The fulfillment, complete fulfillment of all things. Moses made it. You're going to make it too. All right, one final thought. This comes directly from the Father. We read this. Here it is. The Father says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. He didn't say, This is the son. This is my son. That beautiful possessive language. My son, my Christie, my Aiden, my Chorus, 
that tender, deep relational term. A father loves the son dearly. And he says, listen to him. The father is validating the teaching of Jesus. You see, you see, guys, pay attention because it's not just he will suffer, he must suffer. He must be rejected. Jesus must die. It has to be this way. In order to be your whole self, in order to see all of my promises completely fulfilled, it has to go through Jesus, it has to go through the cross, it has to happen, and so you need to listen to him. And it is to the cross that Jesus now heads. More to come as we study from now till Easter. For now, let's close in prayer. Lord, uh, what great images you have given us that occupy our thoughts in these few moments, glimpses into eternity, uh, insights into what heaven will be like, and it all stems and focuses and emanates from none other than Jesus himself. And so I'm praying, God, that you would teach us, Lord, the, the, the art and the skill of a disciple to not limit you in our lives and to see the big Jesus, the capable Jesus that is more than powerful enough, more than loving enough, more than gracious enough to come into any circumstance and carry us through. I'm asking for that for every person in here, God. I'm also asking that you would fill up our hope tanks today, our hope tanks. There's a deficit, there's a debt of hope as we look at the darkness of the shadow lands, God. And yet, Lord, there is the objective reality of the hope of heaven, and so I'm praying that even through this, this, this message today and these feeble words of mine, that you would fill us up with an anticipation of what it means to see the kingdom fully realized in ourselves and in the world around us. And I, I ask you, God, to teach us also to listen to your son. Lord, we thank you so much for the beauty of Jesus and may his dazzling glory fill our lives. And we just ask all of these things humbly, Lord, in your name, amen.